0: Through Isaiah, uh, it's given me pause, um, and so much so that I'm just like, whoa, uh, wow, uh, oh no, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, uh, but it's also really been, it's really blessed me there. And so looking at it with you today, I hope that uh, it might give you pause, uh, and I hope that the Lord might bless you there. And so let's look at God's Word that He has for us today. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I did? I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield wild grapes, why did it yield to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. So ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, uh, we thank you for waking us up from our sleep this morning and bringing us here and in your providence, Lord, giving this word to us. we, We pray, Lord, you know where every one of us are. You know what we need to hear. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak what we need to hear to our hearts this morning and cause us to grow in love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a lot of talk these days about uh, opportunity. So it's commonplace to hear, if I had only had the chance, or if I'd only had the opportunity, then things would have gone well for me, or they, they would go well for me. That's partly the conclusion of an influential book entitled Outliers, the Story of Success. Probably a number of you have read that book before. The author points out that the reason many sports stars succeeded as major league sports stars and such, uh, while others didn't, was because when they were coming up to the ranks as youths, uh, they were about a year older than their peers. So they were, they were born at just the right time, so they entered their grade or their sport um, about a year uh, later than their peers. And, and that ended up uh, giving them an advantage or an opportunity that others didn't have And that led to their success. And that, of course, goes beyond sports as well. Secular psychology has noted uh, the same sort of principle at work in its nature-nurture principle. Why do some succeed and some don't? Well, it's either because we were born with that advantage, nature, or because our circumstances, how we were raised... Nurture gave us that advantage and and therefore the solution at least according to secular psychology is simple if You want someone to succeed Just make the appropriate adjustments to their biology or their circumstances And I think all of us can recognize that there's some truth to that, right? I mean opportunity matters all right but what happens if if those things are great if you've got great nature nurture, if you're, if you're well positioned to succeed, but you still don't, what if, what if you've been presented with the golden opportunity and you fail? See, that's the reality that Isaiah is confronting these Israelites with here. And it's one that, as we consider, I think can teach us a whole lot about us and our relationship to our God. And so, first, let's consider the opportunity. If there was ever an opportunity to to succeed, this is it. Isaiah says, verse 1 and 2, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Now, Now, if you just... Let that hit you a little bit, roll over you. I think hopefully we can see that there's a tone here. It's explicitly a love song. There's a sense of devotion. And as it begins, there's there's joy. There's this happy, hopeful expectation of what's to come. It's a picture of unreserved care. Nothing that was possible to hold back had been held back. He selected the site, a fertile hill, in order to provide optimum protection, irrigation, and uh, long term nourishment, he cleared it of stones so that it wouldn't be hindered by a single unnecessary obstacle. He selected choice vines. Which is to say, this is the best possible stock. It's, it's from a lineage of proven strength, sturdiness, steadfastness. Isn't, it, isn't that right? Uh, John Davies, are you here? Okay, This is, this is how the greenhouse world, world works. You want genetically proven stock. all right? Still further, he spared no expense for their protection. He built a watchtower in the midst of them. And it was probably a watchtower built out of stone i.e., this is, this is not some short-term, Ikea-style furniture experiment, but this is a forever installation. He's planning to always be in the midst of them, to continuously nurture their growth and be ready at all times to protect them if that need should ever arise. To put it another way, what we have here is kind of like buying a new car, but, but not just any new car. See, this isn't a a Dutch-style new used car, all right? But this is our, our dream car. And as a result, we've done meticulous research. We've selected the best manufacturer. We've ordered the platinum model. And with it, every other available extra. Further, we've inspected every piece and joint and fixture by hand. And what we found is that this car is perfect. Everything about it is perfect, both nature and nurture. Some of you are just salivating right now. That sounds great. And so, but, but why? Why go to such extraordinary lengths for a car or a vineyard? Well, for one, because he does care about it, but perhaps even more because he's, he's planning on its success. That's why he built the wine vat on site. In verse 2b, he looked for it to yield grapes. There was really nothing else to look for. It was just a waiting game. When, when's, when, when are the grapes going to show up? It's, it's, as far as investments go, this is a lock. And there are similarities on the other side too. For the vineyard, this level of care and investment is like receiving an idyllic, sure thing kind of opportunity. This is to be born into the wealthiest, most gifted, most loving family on earth. Or to situate it in a spiritual context, this is a person who by both nature and nurture is so bent toward obedience that disobedience would be unnatural. I.e., this isn't a, a neutral person Or someone who's coming up to a fork in the road, let's say, and and they can go to the right after the Lord or to the left away from the Lord. But instead, this is someone who's walking through a tunnel with track lighting on both sides and an audible voice from behind them and in front of them telling them, directing them exactly where to go with each and every step. It's a temptation-free, constant encouragement, comfort, protection, no bumps, straight walk kind of spiritual journey. Sounds good, right? And yet somehow, some way, it all goes sideways. Isaiah says verse 2 C, but and hear the shock here, it yielded wild grapes. More literally, it's, it yielded stink, gra- it stink fruit. It's not, even, it's not even a grape. It's this other thing that's not supposed to be possible. The point is, something irreversibly catastrophic has happened. The vineyard's ruined. The car has been totaled. And with that, you can almost feel like the air is getting sucked out of the room. That happy, hopeful love song has turned into this funeral dirge. The golden opportunity has been wasted. And so point two, the obvious question, who's responsible? Isaiah says, verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So to say, hey you guys, you guys, look at this. You reflect on this. Who did this? The Lord or his vineyard? And Isaiah says, as far as the Lord is concerned, verse 4, what more was there to do for his vineyard that he did not do it, do in it? Didn't he draw it from the very best stock? Didn't he plant it in the best soil and with the best protection? And the answer, of course, to all of these is yes, by absolutely extravagant care lavish grace everything that's possible he afforded his vineyard a golden opportunity and so then verse 4c why did it yield wild grapes well because there's more at work than just nature and nurture or biology and circumstances if we could personify it just a little bit there's something deep down inside the vineyard a, a soul a heart and that soul or heart, it, despite every possible precaution, determined to go sideways. And just think about that for a minute. To go back to the earlier analogy, even though they were walking through a tunnel with lights and audible voices telling and showing them where to go, and even though everything in them was predisposed to go the right way after the Lord, they were so determined so determined to go against the Lord that they went against all of that in order to go against the Lord. And that's where we start to get a sense of the tragedy here. You see, this isn't just a wrong turn, but a wrong turn when the right one should have been automatic and the wrong one should have been impossible. But even worse than that is the relational aspect. You see, You know, if this is just a vineyard or it's just a car, well, stuff happens. That's why we have lemon laws, and it's perhaps a major financial loss. But when that stuff happens, you take your your licks and you start over because plants and cars, while they may hurt us, they don't mean to hurt us. But of course, the whole point of this illustration is to tell us about a relationship between two personal parties, who do mean to do what they do. And so just think about that in terms of the context. This is a vineyard owner lord who loved this vineyard people when nobody else would. This is a personal God who rescued this people when everyone else was out to get them. And therefore, this isn't just tough luck on a bad crop or a more or less innocent sideways-style mistake, but a personal betrayal. It's a case of people sinning against the love they've received from the only one who really loved them and who loved them as much as it was possible to love anyone. And so, what's a vineyard owner to do? Point three, the consequences. Isaiah says, verse five, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, which is to say, its protection and it shall be devoured. It will suffer the natural consequences of life without my protection. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, i.e. I will personally cause it to experience the consequences of life without my protection. It shall not be pruned or hoed, And whatever obstacles then and temptations that I had removed and protected them from before shall be unleashed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. In other words, it will begin to look like the wild and wicked thing that it is. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And so finally, I will remove even those most basic necessities for life and they will meet the slow and agonizing death that they deserve. And so what we have pictured here is a hellacious judgment. It's awful. And yet, it's also very clearly right and fair and just, and they know it. See, that's, that's part of the dynamic While Isaiah discontinued the the self-reflection questions at the end of verse 4, there's little doubt that they've tumbled forward through these verses as well. And with it, a crumpling weight of guilt. It's that heart-sinking heaviness we feel that when we realize that a happy story has turned sour isn't about the other guy, but it's it's about us. Unless... There be any doubt about that? Isaiah says in verse 7 For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Something like that experience David must have had after Nathan asked him to judge the man who stole and slaughtered a poor man's lamb. David, of course, says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then, of course, Nathan says, you're the man. It means the very ones that God invited to judge are the very ones under judgment. They're the ones who receive such extravagant grace. They're the ones he set up for a forever future with abundant provision, with every protection, and a golden opportunity for fruitfulness. And they're the ones of whom He had so much hope. And they're the ones who ruined it. As He states in verse 7b, when He, the Lord, looked for justice, for that that fruit, when He looked for justice, behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, behold, an outcry. Despite all the good that he had poured into them, they used it for evil. Making matters even a little worse here is a play on words that Isaiah does. It's it's as if they disguised it as good. In Hebrew, justice is mishpat, and bloodshed is mishpa, and righteousness is tzedakah, and outcry is se'aka. You can hear the similarity. It's to say, you didn't even sin in a straightforward way, but sinning on top of sinning, you disguised your sinning, your evil deeds, as good deeds. And so, if we think about that, on the one hand, it's proof that the Lord isn't fooled in our deception, but on the other, it connotes a certain self awareness and intentionality with respect to our sin. They didn't accidentally make a wrong turn, but they sought to deceive their God. And so, what do you do with all this? Well, it's it's a hard illustration. Our sin is way worse than we think. We're way more responsible for it than we think, and, and the consequences are way more just than we think. But as hard as it may be to believe the situation depicted here is actually even more dire than that. In terms of the larger context, this is the third and final installment in Isaiah's preface. So in Isaiah 1, 2 through 23, he, he likewise pronounces judgment, but in chapter 1, 25 to 26, he announces hope and grace. It's the same in the second. With Isaiah 3, 16 to 4, 1, there's judgment, and then 4, 4, 4. There's hope and grace, but here in this final installment, it's just judgment. The hope and grace part is missing, and so it's as if the people of Israel have exhausted all the grace God had to offer. It's the sense that if they haven't produced anything from this golden opportunity that he's he's given them, the only thing left is the end. So is this the end? And thankfully it's not, but there's a real sense in which it should have been. In Isaiah 9:2, Isaiah will go on to describe a time when light will again shine into darkness. In 35-1-2, a time when the waste will bear fruit. In other words, there will be a time when there will be even more grace. But that even more grace, it won't come chew us like the first. You see, the justice we deserve won't be just dismissed unless it's satisfied. That's the good, hard news Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, just like the Israelites of old, while we deserved terminal justice for our sins, God has seen fit to redeem us from our sins by sending a Redeemer to satisfy the justice we deserve in our place. Better still, He's come. And He's overcome. The whole wake of waste our sins left behind, instead of being planted on a fertile hill under the constant care and protection of a watchtower, Jesus is sent into the waste that we earned. According to His human nature, He's not born in a palace. But into the humblest of states on the dirt floor of a stable to young unwed and common ordinary parents. According to Nurture, immediately following his baptism, the Spirit of God led him into a wilderness where he was tempted by the devil himself. And yet, despite facing every adversity, every temptation, and even suffering death on a cross, he continuously bore the sweet fruit of obedience, righteousness, and justice And as a result, he didn't just live the life we should have lived, but he suffered for the bad life that we did live. And thus, even more grace is available to sinners in Jesus Christ. He has become a new vine, and in him wild branches who had been destined for destruction can receive new life and the grace to bear good fruit. It's an even more golden opportunity. The question for us to consider is, what are we doing with it? You see, that's what Isaiah is trying to get his audience to grapple with. It's to get honest about the grace we've received, the opportunities that we've wasted, and thus the consequences we really deserve. What are we doing with the reality that it should have been over, but by grace we've been saved? And the answer ought to be, and this is what we need to take away from this. The answer ought to be, bear fruit. But before we go any further, if, if you're not a Christian today, you should know that you can't bear fruit. Jesus puts it in John 15, For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, outside of Christ, it's impossible to bear fruit. But the good news for you is that Christ is free for the taking. In fact, Christ is the opportunity that you've been looking for, that you've been waiting for, you've been grasping for, because Jesus Christ is the only one who can transform your nature and nurture so far that dead men can live, criminals can become saints, and orphans can be eternal sons and daughters of their Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is the only one in whom real life, redemption, and fruitfulness can be found. And so, stop running and searching. And instead, take hold of Him while there's still time. He does not wish any to perish. His grace is sufficient to cover over all of your sins. And in Him, you can bear much fruit. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we can bear fruit. But are we bearing fruit? That's the question Isaiah confronts us with here. You see, the truth is, not only can Christians bear fruit, but all Christians do bear fruit. And there's no such thing as Christians that don't bear fruit. That's why the reality of the fruitless vineyard is so shocking. It's it's like a child who's been born and raised in the church, who's been immersed in its love and care and teaching and protection and nurturing, but falls away. It's like discovering that this ultra-knowledgeable and influential member in the church is a faker, or worse, a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's, it's stuff that isn't supposed to be possible, and we don't want it to be possible, but it happens. It happens in more blended ways, too. It's, it's the Christian husband or wife who, who blesses by day and bruises by night. It's the Christian who's a great servant in the church, but an abusive dictator at home. It's the gifted hard charger who's secretly drowning his sorrows in alcohol or sex or gaming. It's the Christian who says they love their neighbor, but has yet to meet their neighbor. It's the Christian who loves people and can't stop gossiping about people. These mixed fruit branches are are not supposed to be possible in the master's vineyard either, and they happen. And so where are you today? How is your fruit? How is it really? Is there any there? Is it stinky? Is it stinky, but only you and the Lord knows? You see, in reality, we all have room to grow. And the question is, will you take advantage of the golden opportunity you have to grow? I think that's what we forget sometimes. A life united to Christ isn't just freedom from the debt of sin, but the bondage to sin. It's not just to be counted with the righteous, but to be made righteous. It's not just a new start, but it's a new heart. Or to put it another way, a life united to Christ is like an oasis of life and comfort and nourishment in whatever desert wilderness we find ourselves in. It's a golden opportunity to grow and bear fruit. And therefore, don't shrink back from being honest with Christ. He already knows. There's no deception of Christ. And then turning to Christ, because He's for you. He's for all of us. And He desperately desires our good, your good, our growth, and our fruitfulness. This is the even more grace opportunity that Christians have So let's repent freely, quickly, eagerly, and bear fruit boldly. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ, a Savior for sinners, who weathered the storms we made, Lord, who suffered the sins we did. To rescue us from the hellacious judgment that we deserve. Who made peace between us and God. So that, Lord, we might, in abiding in Christ, bear fruit. And so, Lord, I I pray that you might awaken your saints today to the good news, the golden opportunity that we have in Christ to turn from our sins to Christ for forgiveness and mercy and the power, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to bear fruit. Might you make harvest, Lord, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our private lives, more and more an abundantly fruitful people for your glory with all joy and gladness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.